Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'll be your host this week. I'm uh, Ronan, and we're joined once again for another deep dive episode, which is sort of out of keeping with our regular schedule of deep dive and group chat. But we had to be joined this week once again by the um, the former world hour record holder at this point, and after Filippo Ganna went and, and broke the air record on Saturday night. We're joined by Dan Bigham this weekend. Dan, I want to just start by, first of all, extending a congratulations to yourself and Joss because, uh, well, you missed the actual air record at the weekend because you happened to be getting married or something. Is that right? Yeah, well-timed. <laughs> I don't know who can blame either way. Actually, no, the <laughs> wedding was planned about a year out. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't manage to make it. And even watching it was hard. I was on the plane over to the Track World Champs. Uh, I caught the first 10 minutes. When Felipe was three seconds behind, took off and was like, maybe I will keep it. It's like Schrodinger's our <laughs> record holder. It's like, uh, until I land, I'm still the our record holder. Uh, but the plane actually landed a bit earlier, caught the last three minutes. <laughs> Flicked it on, it was like a minute and a half. Jesus Christ, he's gone bananas. Maybe it was something to do with you traveling between time zones or something as well, giving a bit of extra speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was impressive, though. Properly well, impressive. Well, I, I was kind of wondering, actually, is it something like, uh, is it U.S. presidents? Once you've been a president, you're always referred to as president. You're not referred to as former president. So maybe you're just always referred to now as our record holder. And it, it's irrelevant whether you have it, had it, whatever you, at some point you had it. Yeah, I wouldn't complain with that. It's a cool little thing to say. Mm. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Well, of course, you're, you know, you're at the Track World Championships this week preparing to uh, represent Great Britain. You are also a um, performance engineer with Enios Grenadiers, which means you've actually quite worked quite a bit with Felipe Ogana, the new R record holder, in the lead up to this um, attempt. Can you tell us, or can you give us any kind of insight, you know, what kind of a writer is he? Is he the kind of writer who might actually listen to the Nerd Alert podcast if it was in Italian, or is he a kind of traditional pro who's very sort of traditional way of thinking and kind of reserved? Hmm. I don't think he listens currently, but that being said, if I told him to, he'd probably uh, he'd probably go for it. He's pretty open-minded, actually, when you get chatting to him. There's some things that he's definitely um, stuck in his Italian ways with, <laughs> but there's other things, yeah, he's, he's pretty open. and He's just a normal guy when it comes down to it, like I think a lot of people are. And um, yeah, I think he'd probably have a listen. How engaged is he with all the sort of marginal gains and all the sort of work that you would have been hoping that he would engage quite well with? I think it varied on some things, absolutely, uh, and he really bought into them, and on others, uh, less so. I think um, there were some interventions that we would have liked to have done that were just probably too intensive in the time demand and just resource demand on him, like to make some relatively significant changes um, that, in the long term, probably would have brought him further distance. But it's it's quite hard to do. And, and, and I've said it a few times that like I had a big focus on it and he had other things on and that that's probably one of the, the, the detriments of that. Of you don't have the ability to take a step back to go two steps forward because you're so limited on time and, and other things you can't continually just keep rolling the dice and trying new things and adapting to them because you've got races and travel and everything else. So um, he, he definitely bought into a lot of the other things around thermal physiology. You probably saw him on, on uh, Zwift and, on social media in the paint suit. I've got one right behind me actually. I've been using it here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, he bought into into that stuff, especially after he did a practice run. Or pra- it wasn't a practice run actually. It was a sort of less than full gas hour record, but just to appreciate the full distance and came off and 
yeah, I think he appreciated off the off the back of that that heat is a big factor. So he he definitely came into that. And then on the equipment front, uh, there were a few things that he he would question, and I quite like that in the sense of saying, "Are you sure it's faster because it feels like this?" And they're like, "No, we can trust the numbers, and here's why." You show the data, and then yeah, away you go. So he was most of the way there. Um, I think there's a bit more to be had, which is equally a scary thought. But there's more distance there. <laughs> Yeah, well, one of the things I heard that he sort of kicked back on was the the white skin suit idea. He was insisting on black. Is that? <laughs> yeah, he was pretty keen on black, uh, which is a shame. I've got a lot of time for a white skin suit. Um, but then that being said, having spoke to him afterwards, uh, he had a bit of chafing around his undercarriage that um, may have caused a color change, shall we say. So uh, maybe black was a good choice. Well, uh, as you mentioned there as well, you know, you're all the preparation that went into it, but actually your our record attempt or your successful our record attempt was perhaps the best bit of preparation for someone's our record attempt we've we've ever seen in that I'm sure the Enios Grenadiers and yourself took a lot of learnings from that that you could apply to Filippo's attempt going forward, which no doubt helped him then. Can you give us any insight what interventions or learnings or updates you came up with? Uh, I think there was a lot of different ones. Obviously, I mentioned the thermal physiology and the different strategies we took around heat training, but also the preparation to get core temperature low. Uh, and then by extension, the pacing strategy, uh, a lot of that was based on thermal physiology. If you keep core temperature low, your gross efficiency stays high for longer into the effort. So you're effectively less fatigued at the back end. Okay, at some point, you've got to ride harder. But the actual distance cost of riding that negative split, a lot of people... Uh, I mean, on another podcast that talks about marginal gains, uh, professed it to be quite a big distance, but it, it's, it's surprisingly small. So my negative split actually cost me about 12 meters in total drag terms from the non-linearity okay. of, of aero drag. So it's, it's, a, it's an order of magnitude less than what you gain from the benefit from core temperature and therefore gross efficiency, uh, but also making sure that you do empty the tank and keep a good position and a good line. I think in the last 10 minutes, Filippo started to struggle a little bit. He probably pressed on a bit too early um, and then really had to hang on to it. And uh, that's not enjoyable from, mm -hmm. from my experience, but it, it wasn't an absolute collapse. He was still putting time into every record. So uh, there's probably a smidge more to be had there. Uh, and I think that's where the negative split that he brought into really helps. He It's relatively easy. He's, he's riding comfortably below threshold for the first 10, 15, 20 minutes and then gets onto it. So, uh, yeah, that, that was one that he really brought into. Um, and then things as well, like like the tyres, right, running clincher tyres, um, they feel weird for any track rider who's used to the experiences of what that, that would feel like of a, a tub pumped up to 15 bar or even higher. And then, uh, yeah, switching to something that's a lower pressure, much bigger tire, the sensations change. Um, and he, yeah, after discussions on it, he he bought into it. And at the end of the day, if it's faster, it's faster. Um, you don't ride on perceptions. You uh, you go fast, and that's what matters really when it comes down to it. Um, and yeah, there were a few other things. Uh, putting his helmet in the freezer, that was just a random one, but a bit of a, a small little game there. Um, trying to think gearing we had a lot of interesting discussions there a lot of his practice runs came on much smaller gears his cadence was 105 plus rpm in some of his 30 minute runs that he'd done previously uh, and we got that much 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 lower uh, when we were targeting sort of 95 96 rpm he, he went a little bit further than the planned distance should we say or what we thought and that was just more of a reflection of his physiology on the day he really really did knock it out of the park and therefore his cadence was higher because when you're on a fixed gear if you want to go faster you got to pedal quicker 
Yeah, was it a 65-14, was it? I, I was trying to count the chain rings, but the crank arm was blocking it and I couldn't get the right angle. But <laughs> Yeah, 65. Um, actually, the now that you've brought it up, we'll just maybe delve into the pacing strategy because it, it was one of the questions I had and that, you know, Filippo had said that when he was doing those laps that were touching 59k an hour, which is just bonkers when you think about it, that he seemed to indicate that was sort of... The, not the planned distance being 59k an hour, but the planned distance being 57, but perhaps he had just left himself too much to do. But actually, from what you've worked out, that's that's not really the case. Had he set it a flat 57 throughout, it would have been even more difficult. Yeah. I, the the more aggressive, and obviously the, the higher speeds, the more aggressive the negative split and the higher speed you have to go at the back end, the more that non-linearity of aero drag starts to hurt you. So maybe it did cost him... I haven't run the numbers yet. We're still waiting on the the official splits and from the track, but um, it's probably more like 50, 60 meters. Maybe it's cost him. I don't think it truly cost him the the fifty seven, but um, yeah, it does it does take a take a lot. We had one strategy through to halfway, which is uh, to to sit on basically sixteen fours, threes, twos, ones, zeros, by fifteen nines, fifteen eights, and then. Um, but the second half, you can modulate accordingly. So we had a flat split for 56 and then a slight raise towards 56.375, obviously Borman's record, and then a, a big raise to, to try and get to 57, which was absolutely seen as the stretch goal from all of our modeling that we thought it may be, abs- may be possible if it all came together. Um, and having looked back through quite a few of the, the numbers, we obviously have power data from it, that it looks achievable for 57 if, if there were a few of the things that kind of went his way. If his line was a little bit better in the back end and held his position a little bit better in that last 10 minutes, then, yeah, 57 probably would have been cracked. Uh, and then, yeah, you could, for example, you could have better atmospherics, um, could tweak a few things here and there, and before you know it, yeah, 57 is absolutely on the card. So um, don't say never say never that he won't do another one again and probably put a good chunk onto it then. Well, you know, in, in the sort of in the chaos after the finish, I'm I'm pretty sure I heard him mention that yeah, when I do this again with fresher legs, sort of thing. But it very quickly turned around and was never again, sort of comments. So yeah, we'll we'll wait and see what happens on that one. But the one sort of thing that I found not not strange in any way, but just sort of a peculiar sort of oddity was that you know yourself being so data driven and data focused and you had decided not to run with a parameter because there was gains to be had from using different pedals and cranks that didn't permit a parameter. Whereas someone like Filippo, who is maybe less data-focused, decided to run the parameter. Uh, so, you know, is that an indication that you want to know how it went so that you can plan for the future? And one thing I didn't ask you in the last podcast was how much does it haunt you not having the power file to analyze over and over again? <laughs> uh, I don't think it haunts me too much. Obviously, it's, it's less than ideal. You, you'd want the numbers if you can, but... I'd I'd happily take a further 50, 100 meters uh, and not have the numbers. So, yeah, uh, you can't have your cake and eat it, unfortunately, in that respect. So, um, yeah, that was quite annoying. And I think Filippo was very keen to to have his numbers from that with a view towards the future uh, and also understanding the event itself. Um, so, yeah, he he was quite set in his mind that that was the way to go. Uh, versus yeah myself I was I've always been a, a fan of on 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 the race day what matters is absolute performance and unless there's a, a good reason for collecting specific data then it's to your detriment you you really need to think that one through and yeah I've I've considered it quite a bit and decided yeah 
no data basically. The only thing I had was my core temperature pill and core sensor on, um, but nothing more. Mm. Well, having seen the bike up close immediately after the finish, the one thing I could say was that there's perhaps a better Garmin mount that might have been slightly fa- maybe I, like there's this brand Watch Shop that do a, a Garmin mount that might have been slightly better integrated. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I can small details. I can yeah. understand why you yeah. might want it. Um, I want to sort of ask you just about the you know your your two riders uh, working with the same team. You know you're on the same bike, have the same sponsors and all that, but there's still you know quite a bit of individuality between both of you, I guess. And you know it, basically what I'm wondering is how 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 transferable is the preparation from your ride straight across to Filippo's, and then things like we've seen Filippo's uh, Aero risers, and he's got the cask visor with the end plates on it you know are all those things different for a specific reason or or how do you end up coming to those different uh bits of equipment that you had versus what he had yeah it's individuality of, of aerodynamics when it comes down to it so i had full access to every partner and every sponsor within and every component within in the oscar stable uh so yeah things like the the visor things like those risers we looked at them for myself and uh, they weren't an improvement. Uh, my position is obviously different to Filippo's, my head position especially, and, and with how that works. So the Filippo is a significant improvement and not so for me. And yeah, we tested right the, the risers and looked a lot around the CFD of that. And also, same again, not an improvement uh, for my position. That's not to say there isn't going to be something else there uh, if you're going to a different shape, but that kind of style, uh, the sort of kinked elbow uh, didn't didn't work for me. Um, but you, you probably noticed like I had a different handlebar or base bar um, versus the versus what Filippo had. So it's just the, the individuality of aerodynamics. And yeah, I'd fine-tuned my, my setup and the same with Filippo. And I guess that's one of the advantages of some of the partners that we have, that they have so many different options. It's not a case of this is the helmet. It's We've got four different helmets and two different visors and then the combinations of all of that. And then same with BioRacer and the double-layer technology there, that all the different options that we can run there and, and fine tune um and then yeah same with the cockpits and, and the way pinarello and most do them that we can fine tune and optimize rider by rider and it's just i guess one of our our big strengths as, as a team that we kind of appreciate the aerodynamic individualities and and work towards them and don't just run a cookie cutter across every rider and give them the same piece of kit and say there you go that's fair that's that's equal because we know it's not yeah i think it's both fascinating and kind of daunting that you know considering how complicated aerodynamics are for uh, the majority of us to think then that you're not only optimizing aerodynamics for the team but actually from an individual to an individual there there's vastly different setups that can work in vastly different ways yeah uh, it's it's quite an interesting optimization problem that you might be at a local optimum but it could be the next best optimum or something even better could be two three four five steps away and i guess that's where the experience and the knowledge and the understanding of what's actually happening enables you to make those steps because if not you can paint yourself into a corner and think you're in an optimum but not quite know how to get out of there and find something a whole lot better so it's understanding how you can uh, impact all the different drag mechanisms over your body uh, and how you can influence them and, and what you can do about it and then why you should tune them for specific riders or specific conditions or specific positions. So it's uh, it's a really interesting area and it's just trying to understand it. And I don't think 
I don't think well we definitely don't understand everything but we're we're really trying to and I think the knowledge of that is is really powerful and enables you to do something with purpose and with objectivity as opposed to just simply throwing darts at a dartboard. Fascinating yeah and obviously this conversation always comes back to CDA and that I don't suppose you can tell us what Filippo's was on Saturday night. <laughs> um, <laughs> wonder. I can probably give you a what's the CDA value. I think that, that wouldn't upset anybody. Uh, if you give me 30 seconds. He was about, mm-hmm. uh, what's that, 2,450. What's the CDA? What's the, yeah, what's the CDA? What's per meter squared? Um, and then you can draw a line of CDA versus power and then decide what power you think he did. It'll tell you what CDA that needs. Well, that's, um, that's, that's fascinating. C- can you put that in context for, is there any way to put that in context for the, for the listener? Yeah. So 2,450, if you had a, a CDA of 0.2, then you would have done 490 Watts. If you had a CDA of 0.15, then you would have done 367 Watts. Um, so, I mean, if you go in the middle, two, four, five times, let's say a 0.18, then you would have done 441 Watts. So somewhere in that kind of region. Mm. So it, it, it really does make a massive difference. And it's actually a feature that I'm working on at the moment, just trying to, you know, make that uh, sort of break down CDA and, and uh, make it more digestible for, for myself anyway, to begin with. So <laughs> help myself understand it, but maybe a fairer question, how does his CDA on the track for an hour record compared to his road time trial position? And how does it compare to, road pursuit is it I'm, I'm guessing it's not the same throughout uh no it pretty much is crank length the same saddle heights the same or aft cockpits all the same there's no changes between the two i think he's more consistent in how he holds his position on the track especially for the pursuit um he's not i'd say ultra disciplined but he's quite good at it hence why his position is a lot better he's a much bigger guy so when he, he moves around at the top end with his head and his shoulders then he has a much bigger hit than some of the smaller guys like myself so um yeah it pays for him to to really focus on that um in drag terms I'm trying to think actually he's probably somewhere around 0.01 lower cda on the track which is about the same as what i get versus road tts um so that's obviously with removing brakes, front mech, rear mech, having a front disc, um, getting rid of your brake levers, all those small little details, they they do add up. And also you can kind of optimize a, in small respects, anyway, you can optimize easier on the track because your conditions are more controlled, more known. Whereas outdoors, you, you've obviously got a much broader range of, of wind speeds and your angles. So you have to try and, um, try and not end up in a situation where you have very peaky performance, but it for example, might stall at a, a low yaw angle that you still might see in the real world. Um, but yeah, he's fairly well set with his position. He is in a good position for sure for his size. It's, uh, it's scarily impressive, the CDA that he's got to. Um, but that's just down to the, the effort and the focus that's gone into it over the past, I guess, three or four years that he's been with the team. He's he's continually refined and yeah, he's, he's pretty good. Not to say he can't improve. Um, I think we'll always keep moving forward. And obviously there's some new UCI regulations coming in on the 1st of January. So um, nice new opportunity to go back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned just, you know, all the differences there between a road bike and a track bike. And when we think of CDA, most people's minds tend to look towards, you know, getting a more extreme position or body position, but there's, there's so much more to it than that. There's like, as you mentioned, everything about the bike, but helmet and clothing and, and, and you know, are, are you able to break it down into, you know, which, when you test Filippo in the wind tunnel, which 
uh, elements of or, or the contribution, I guess, to a CDA from all the different elements that, that go into it? Um, I mean, it's not easy to, to split out. Uh, and the, the lower your CDA, then typically the more contribution comes from frame, wheels, etc., or the, the equipment, uh, and less from the rider. Whereas in Filippo, in percentage terms, the bike is less than, than the rider. Therefore, you should focus more on the rider and what you can do there. Um, the vast majority of the drag comes from, from sort of legs and, and just behind your, your glutes and, and lower back. There's a, a big separation there. Uh, and on your legs, you get a lot of, um, uh, or you get uh, alternating vortices shed off the back that um, are pretty much, pretty, yeah, very, very draggy. Uh, they're, they're pretty much your primary source. Uh, you can do a lot to influence around the sort of hip, upper leg, lower leg, hence why aero socks are really efficient. When people scratch their heads at how you can find sort of 10 plus watts at TT speeds on a pair of socks, it's because there's a whole lot of drag there because there's very clean flow hitting a cylinder that is pretty poor in, in aero terms. Uh, there's been a huge amount of tech development around skin suits in the upper arm. That's that's quite important. It's easier, again, relatively clean airflow and um, being a cylinder, you tend to get a, a lot of uh, pressure drag from separation. So doing all you can to to reduce that, and that's obviously where TT positions come into their own, where you fine tune it. It's it's small small levels of adjustment, ten mil here and a few degrees change here and there, but they can have a a massive impact on total drag. When if you've got let's say twenty five newton meters, sorry twenty five newtons of drag, that's like two and a half kilos pulling you back. It's not actually much in the way of force. You can transfer a lot of power very easily. For example, if you ride by somebody and push them with two kilos effective force, then you can easily give them four, five, 600 watts of assistance, depending on the speed that you're at. And I think people don't quite appreciate just how low the forces are in aero drag terms and therefore why small little changes that just change small things in flow structures can actually have a real big effect on how fast you go. And do you have like a, a, a process then for when you're trying to help, you know, riders with any of us or the British team you're with this week or whoever it might be, you know, is, is there a process or is it different for every rider again where you can't just say, right, let's start long and low and see how that works and work backwards or forwards? Um, I think everybody has a different approach and different uh, methodology uh, to, to how you optimize a ride. And I think a lot of it depends on where they're coming from, but also their age, their, their point in their career, what their targets are, uh, how comfortable they are, how what, what inju- injuries, impingements they might have, flexibility problems. Uh, no one's ever... Uh, the same as anybody else. They're all unique problems in themselves. Um, I think my approach is to tend to go towards um, the highest sustainable stack height before your aerodynamics start to fall off a cliff. Um, Primarily because then you you get the best of both worlds, you get the power production or ideally get power production at the same time as as aero. Um, But it's it's just a simple case of uh, everybody is unique and you have to... um, either one, throw a lot of darts at that dartboard and, and change stack height and pad width and reach and saddle height and saddle fore and aft. And every combination thereof, so you end up with a huge matrix or you try and understand what's happening aerodynamically when you make a change and then how you can poke and prod that in a bit more detail. And that's where things like CFD really come into their own. It's not so much about saying that um, this is faster than that, but actually just understanding exactly why it's faster, what the mechanism is, what when you influence the air, when you influence the air, what is actually doing, and therefore you can um, get a bit more understanding of of what you're trying to do, um, as opposed to yeah the sort of black box approach of it. You mentioned power production there. It's probably impossible to put a number on it, but 
do you have a, a general number for what you would expect someone to lose? You know, going from a, I guess road to time trial, and then from time trial to optimized position that you would get them into, or, or, or are you just aiming for a zero loss? Because I, I guess that's probably not practical either. No, zero loss definitely isn't practical, and it's not a, st- a static value anyway. Your body adapts to a stimulus, but your aerodynamics don't. So no matter how much you ride, your aero is not going to get better, but your physiology will. So my approach is mostly to take a, a backward step on the physiology to take an improvement in the aerodynamics and hope that you train it back. And I pretty much, I guess in some respects, been the epitome of that for a few years now, because physiologically you would say I've not really improved, or at least very little. But actually what I've done is just constantly recovered the losses that I've taken through aerodynamics improvements for the cost of power. So Johnny Johnny Whale, who's done a huge amount of work on both my hour record project and, and Garner's, uh, pulled together a really interesting graph from all my practice runs of the power that I was putting in and my CDA that was hitting over the past few years. And it's just CDA drifts down, power basically within five or 10 watts stays constant. And it's, yeah, just work on the aero as opposed to, it's not that I'm not working on the physiology, it's just a different thought of like not trying to put more power in, but it's at the expense of, of aero. That's mm, not a, it's not a, a common train of thought, let's put it that way. It's <laughs> Most of us are obsessed with more power, more power. Uh, power is vanity, speed is sanity. <laughs> As a, uh, a wise man once said, um, yeah, at the end of the day, speed does win races and um, you don't finish a time trial and get a, a big leaderboard and it's just the power numbers on it. It's, it's the time, isn't it, when it comes down to it. So uh, when you're racing on relatively flat courses, all that matters is what's the CDA. So however you get that ratio highest is, is what matters. And I know it, it really annoys some old schoolers because they just think of it as no longer a physiological effort well it was never a physiological effort physics just didn't get invented 10 years ago physics have always been around and people have always used them to our advantage uh it's just they i guess they dislike the intellectual endeavor and highly value the physiological endeavor um and i would say you value them both accordingly and whoever's uh, strikes that best balance is most deserving of, of winning the race mm-hmm. well on on that note then how you know how, how much work has gone into for for Filippo and for yourself as well throughout the season how much time and effort are you dedicating to be able to adopt and sustain these positions and are you like are you doing things like we would do training or power we might do over unders or on off are you doing like over unders at 0.15 cda or on off at 0.15 how do you train it uh for myself, it's a case of sheer time in position of just applying that stimulus all the time. So I do uh, the vast majority of my my training in TT position, and that's doing, for example, like three, four, five hour turbos on the TT bike in the skis. And maybe you get out once to go to the toilet or twice, maybe. Um, so it's just constant in position and that you've just got to build towards and your body starts to adapt. And I think having the comfort to ride in that position. I mean, to the point now that my TT bike, I would say, is significantly more comfortable than my road bike. I really don't enjoy riding my road bike because it, it just doesn't feel natural. Um, but uh, in general, it's about yeah, time in position, I'd say, is the predominant thing. Um, but then also trying to ride fast. And I don't think enough people do that. They associate TT intervals with trying to hit a power number their coach has set rather than trying to hit a power number whilst going as quick as is possible, physically possible. And that's not just a case of holding position, but that's riding the right lines, applying power in the correct place on a, on a given road. 
Um, and just thinking about speed as the metric, because in the day, again, that is what wins the bike race. It's not the power. Okay, physiologically, you need the power. But at the same time, if you're not practiced in executing that, so at the right inertia is in the right position uh, and developing that power at the right points on the course, then you're not going to win because, yeah, you can't just ride at your threshold for an entire TT and expect to to win to win a bike race because you've got to vary that power output and you've got to do it in the position and you've got to do it at the right inertia. So I think replicating your race environment as much as possible is, is a good thing. And it's something that I've done a lot of with not just the practice runs, but just going on the track and, and doing longer training sessions or doing six hour aero tests where you do 120, 140 kilometers of aero testing, just, just go do it. And um, it's just another, another form of training. Mm, well it, i guess it's just like old, good old-fashioned motor pacing and that you know you might be doing the same power behind the motorbike but the the way you're delivering that power is very different at a, a higher speed simulating race speeds yeah i think people are starting to get a handle on that nowadays that torque distribution changes um as speed changes because the amount of kinetic energy stored within the system is different so as you input power you can effectively at high inertia you can uh, apply a greater impulse and then recover for longer throughout the pedal cycle so yeah, you recruit muscles differently at different points in the cycle. Therefore, you should train at that. I want to go back to Grenson Velodrome uh, again. I know we visited, you know, much deeper detail on the podcast immediately after your hour record. So anybody who hasn't heard that can can go back and check that out for exactly why you you chose Grenson. But having been there since now for Ghana's attempt, I can understand just how. Um, much more appealing it would be for someone like Anna. It's just so easy to get to, so accessible, very sort of low-key town, very, very quiet. The velodrome's right next door to hotels and all. It's, it's just so easy. But one thing I have heard is that it doesn't roll quite as fast. The the, the boards themselves aren't quite as fast as, as other velodromes. Was there any neat tricks you'd done to combat CDA, or, or sorry, rolling resistance, other than, you know, the tires, which we've, we've already talked about? Um... You know, were you doing anything like using different gases and to pump them up or anything? Or I think that came up on another podcast. Yeah, on another podcast. No, we've definitely looked at it previously, and uh, at least with the, the tests that I've done with the Danish Federation, we couldn't find a measurable difference. Um, that's not to say there might not be something there, but at least with the rigs that we had at the time, there wasn't a, a meaningful improvement to it. Uh, it's stuff that we definitely talked about and thought about, but. There's not a huge amount in rolling resistance. It's not to say you don't focus on it, but for Filippo, you're probably 25 watts of rolling resistance. And then you've got maybe 10 watts in drivetrain and once you're at the speed, everything else is aero. So the main thing is basically holding aero position and not covering extra distance, which is, is actually quite a significant component. Um, in Filippo's practice run, he was, I remember, a good few hundred meters more than measured distance. And I was about 100 meters for mine. Um, so line quality can can add a big amount when it multiplies up because you're doing 200 and something laps. So it doesn't take much above each each corner above the black line to, to suddenly add a huge amount of distance. So they were kind of the two main focuses. Um, yeah, there's there's probably a little bit to be to be found in playing around with gases, but you can't really go and uh, do anything on the surface. We couldn't go and, for example, sand all the velodrome down and get it pristinely smooth. Um, yeah. Well, well, I've heard that the Grenson Velodrome refused to turn on the he heating for our record attempts until recently. So uh, don't say anything's impossible. <laughs> Things can always be done, I guess. But uh, Mine went the other way, actually. I had to, mine was getting too hot. Um, oh, that right. was basically back end of summer. 
So, mm-hmm. and especially in my practice run back in June, it was it was a mad heat wave. If you remember the um, tour, was it Tour de Swiss or Tour of Romandy? It was Tour of Romandy, wasn't it? Uh, if it was June, I'm guessing it must have been Swiss. Yes, where yes. there was a few COVID positives, Yates and Pidcock, and it was like 30-something mm-hmm. degrees, and it was absolutely cooking. So yeah, that's when I did my practice run, and we couldn't get the Velodrome cold enough. <laughs> it's like quite a challenge to actually cool the place down. Well, because there's a great big skylight in the ceiling, isn't there? Yeah, basically, yeah, the entire thing's heating up. So I was going in there, and at points, it's like 30 degrees. And you're like, <laughs> well, I don't want to do an hour record in 30 degrees. That's not enjoyable. Mm, I can, I can yeah. imagine it wouldn't be, wouldn't be too nice. Now, speaking of temperature, do you ever look at tire temperature is that a i'm guessing it's going to be minimal but um it's just it's one thing that strikes me that we're not measuring at the moment or at least i i'm not measuring um but potentially i guess could make a difference and if you think about how hot a velodrome is for an hour record and then just all the forces of getting pushed into a banking every uh couple of seconds surely there must be something in tire temperature is there there is enrolled resistance, yeah. Uh, so a warmer tyre rolls faster. A bit like um, if you get blue tack, and maybe kids probably played it at school, as soon as it warms up, it's really pliable. So there's less, it takes less energy to, to deform. Same with the tyre. And it's meaningful, it's measurable. Um, you're talking a few percent per degree, well, depends on the tyre, but um, maybe a percent per degree, up to 2% per degree, something like that. Um, but you can't actively heat the tyre. I mean, having tried it previously, you can get a tyre a lot warmer, but because there's very little material there it cools down very very quickly it's not like in motorsport where there's a huge tire carcass and then you're putting a lot of energy into it like in formula one if you're i mean if you're pulling like whatever it is two two tons of downforce through four tires then something that's a lot of force at high velocity means there's a huge amount of power being absorbed by the tire whereas in cycling if you've got 25 watts going into two tires 12 and a half watts each like 12 and a half watts is is barely a candle <laughs> um, you're not really going to heat the tire i guess in theory you could heat the track but that's probably not very efficient um getting wood up to mm. 50 60 degrees not easy to do if it's a tarmac track maybe a little bit easier i mean we've all ridden on hot tarmac but then it goes the other way and gets really stacky uh, tacky and sticky um so there's probably a little bit to be had in it but again logistically and financially that's quite quite an overhead to, to get super hot tires to a meaningful uh, performance benefit I'm, I'm kind of more thinking though would it have affected tire pressure throughout the hour and would that just be so negligible it wouldn't really make a difference uh if the air temperature changed so typically your tire will settle at somewhere between air temp and um ground temperature so if you're outside in the sun and tarmac's at 40 degrees and the air temp's 20 then yeah you probably tires sell somewhere around 30 degrees um but when you're inside on the track track temp's pretty much the same as as air temperature give or take so you won't really see any meaningful heating because you're not putting enough power in to the tire itself while riding so your temperature so your pressure shouldn't change uh relative to to Boyle's law ideal gas law um but you can you can do the maths on it like a degree change won't do anything meaningful uh whereas you've seen it probably in like Ironman triathlons where you have to rack their bike the night before and the sun comes out at 7 a.m. and suddenly tires are going pop left, right, and center because someone pumped them up in the cool evening air and um, yeah, the pressure suddenly ramps up a huge amount in the morning by or 10, 15 degrees can actually be enough, uh, especially nowadays with hookless speeds that <laughs> the running pressure is rather close to the uh, the actual t- pressure limit. So uh, tires pop off pretty easy. Hmm. Less said about that, the better. Um, that's a, that's a whole other minefield. <laughs> um, maybe I'm 
just going crazy or something. But you know, speaking of all the efficiencies and all the savings that she's made, one of the things that immediately struck me during their record on Saturday night was just how quiet Ghana was circulating the track. There was like, you know, you, you have a time trial bike passing the road and just all the noise associated with that. Whereas it was almost silent as he was like lapping beneath me. You had, you had the crowd, but apart from that, there was like no noise from the the bike. It just struck me as something rather uh, impressive. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to every aspect being pretty finely settled and finely tuned. So even like the the bearings, for example, there were significantly bigger bearings than you would probably get in any other wheel set um, and just rolled very, very nicely, very quietly as well. Obviously noise, I mean, it's not a big loss. You do the maths on the amount of energy required to make noise is actually really, really low. I mean, if not, people who talk all day would be burning thousands of calories and they don't. So. Noise is actually not all that 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 bad, um, but then in drivetrains as well. So the the rear wheel had been designed so that we can adjust in really fine increments the the lateral cog spacing. So it was actually um, Shimano Centerlock spline for the rear cog as opposed to your normal thread, which just meant that it was super easy to take a cog off and adjust the spacing to get the chain line absolutely perfect. Uh, just fine little details like that that, that add up to the noise. Uh, I think most of the noise in, on bikes tend to be come from rattling cables and rattling brakes, and obviously you get rid of that. But it's yeah, it's definitely a quiet bike. Um, and then yeah, when the crowd isn't isn't screaming, it's it's quite eerie. I think of a, a velodrome with just one person going. It, it, it crossed my mind when I was there how eerie it must have been for your record, given that you had like uh, prohibited any of us from coming to see it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> had the crowd not been there for Ghana's, it would have been quite strange. Yeah, sorry about that. I mean, there, there was obviously a lot of intent of keeping things behind closed doors, um, yes. with with the reason of obviously keeping things under wraps and not, yeah, not letting the bike and all the finer details get out too early. Hence, no super detailed photos or super detailed live coverage or anything like that. Which, in retrospect, it would have been nice to have, yeah, all the fanfare that goes with it. But the purpose for me was was break the record, and that's all I really ever wanted to do. And everything else is obviously a bonus. Um, and yeah, Filippo's was was the big big main event where yeah it all it all rolls out all singing all dancing and and you guys can have a nice good look at at all the finer details of the bike. So uh, that's my yeah. job. Yep. <laughs> um, he you know he got a decent night in terms of atmospherics and that, but it was by no means great. Um, and obviously that's part of the reason why you might pump up the temperature or uh, but you can't control barometric pressure obviously but one of the things you can control also is humidity um and you mentioned in the last podcast you know if it gets hot and humid then you're going to have a tough time keeping your temperature under control one of the crazier things that i heard suggested was that you had actually tried to bring in some sort of like industrial sized dehumidifiers or something uh, <laughs> is there any truth <laughs> in that yeah. uh yeah 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 it was uh one of the things we looked at um I mean, uh, there probably is a benefit to it. It's it's relatively minimal because the the humidity ranges weren't a million miles off what our performance window was, so it was it was deemed a bit unnecessary. But if you head up, for example, and you got say seventy, eighty percent humidity, then that can be pretty detrimental. And that's the point where I was like, maybe it's worth worth considering and doing. It's not impossible. It's just like proper full size industrial dehumidifiers running for a good while to, to pull out what is actually hundreds of litres of water from the air. It's no small building. And yeah, if you're trying to pull out 10, 20, 30% humidity from literally thousands of litres of air, then uh, unsurprisingly, there's quite a bit of water in that. Mm. So logistical challenge, but one that we'd, we'd discussed and thought through, but um, none of the forecasts put us into a range of humidities that were going to be 
game enders. Interesting. Uh, just thinking about the dehumidifiers, I've had to dry out rooms and houses and how big and loud they are, uh, or how big they are, sorry. Um, I hate to imagine how big a dehumidifier for a velodrome would have been. <laughs> the biggest challenge might have been getting it through the front door, but... Yeah, but they do exist, right? Like, if you think about big buildings, whatever they might be, if, like, you're building, like, say, a shopping mall, then when it's all sealed up, then they chuck a dehumidifier in because they want to get the humidity back to a, a sensible level indoors. So... They're, they're not um, rare things to come across, but equally they're not cheap and they're not small. Um, going back to Aero for a second, uh, Filippo has now sort of truly unified the Aero record, the Eclipse Boardman's Superman position. Uh, how much convincing would it take for you to go and have a go at the best human effort, so-called um, Aero record, some sort of a Ineos 159 challenge or something like that? Could we convince you to try something like that? Full Superman. I wonder how much I'll actually gain in it. It's something I'd be keen on. I was I was genuinely looking at the athletes hour as something to do. Um <laughs> something to do as if I'm at a loose end. Uh the uh um the athletes hour rules that people are probably aware of is basically doing it on a drop bar road bike, spoky wheels, everything that they had back in, in Merckx's day. But the uh the UCI are no longer ratifying attempts on that record, so uh it would be an unofficial attempt, but one that could be quite fun at the same time. Uh, but yeah, maybe maybe doing the the full human effort. I don't know. It's it's one of those like where do you draw the line though? Because you could go in a recumbent, you could go in a third recumbent, and suddenly you could do a hundred k an hour. And it's they're all arbitrary lines when it comes down to it, and you can only ever go up to whatever arbitrary line is drawn at the time. So I mean, if you go back to the to those days, then you could probably get away with a whole lot more than they were doing at the time. But it was just down to highly subjective rule application by UCI officials in the sort of eighties and nineties to to decide what was fair and what wasn't fair. And uh, there's a really interesting book um, that I've been reading on the Lotus Type 108, and I've forgotten the name of the author right now, which is really bad because uh, he sent me a copy of it. But um, it uh, really details the process they went through to get the book, uh, sorry, to get the bike over the line because they were aware of the subjective approach and application of, of rules uh, with the UCI. So they wanted to... Uh, yeah, take baby steps and make sure they didn't upset everybody on the way with what was actually going to be quite a controversial bike. That's uh, Paul Greasley authored that book. Uh, I know because I've also got it. I uh, haven't had to start it yet. I haven't got to start it yet, but uh, the pictures are, are fabulous in it. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely top notch. Really good book. Um, it's definitely like a coffee table book that you, you pull out. And yeah, it's, it's it's really well researched as well. I like it because there's so much of of that story that's, um, I guess, ingrained in the history of cycling, but is kind of glamorized and talked about through rose tinted spectacles where he kind of tells the story warts and all. And I've got a lot of time for that. Mm. Well, for, from, from my point of view, the athletes are record is sort of more difficult to sort of draw a line on because, you know, we've, you might, you might make the bike look the same, but we've just got so much more understanding around training and physiology and everything else that goes into it. Even, you know, when, when Boardman did the athletes are, you know, even just moving to a 16 centimeter stem and aeroblading the spokes and things like that, that would have actually made a difference, but it still looked the same. So it's, it's a very tough one. Uh, I think for myself, I would be more and uh, attracted to the best human effort and trying to put everything that modern science and the likes of yourself know into an hour record rather than um for me it comes back to you you know how fast can i cycle rather than how fast can i cycle under a 
set of arbitrary rules that happened to be made up in Switzerland by someone who happened to think that they were a good idea on a on a specific day. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I can see the appeal of of all three uh, ways that we can do in our record. <laughs> Yeah, I think I was thinking about this last night, actually, though. You don't necessarily actually even have to do the hour nowadays. Um, a lot of my practice runs were just kind of model correlations and just checking that the model makes sense and that any fine tuning that we've made stacks up. And I'd say I'm pretty much at the point now that within reason, I can probably model and be happy that we can achieve 100 meters accuracy on what someone would get over a given hour, give or take. So it would be a case of just measuring a few variables on an athlete's hour bike, a Superman position bike, et cetera, and then going, yeah, you'd probably go this far <laughs> and be pretty pretty content in that. And that saves having to go and ride a few more hours because they're fun to a point, but <laughs> they're not easy. Well, um, let, let's, not, let's not go down the, make, the route of making a fourth option for the hour and, and just modeling it. We, we want to keep some sort of... Uh... <laughs> We want to keep something to watch and if, <laughs> if if ghana has put the actual hour record on the shelf now we we might not see any attempts for a few years so uh i'm i'm, I'm hopeful dan that you will give both the athletes our and the best human effort our record to go just so that we have something to watch <laughs> i'd say never say never there are a lot of people i think who could still challenge that record and uh and push Felipe. it's obviously a really good mark like a very very good mark but it's not it's not unbeatable. And I think anybody who says that is a bit naive. If you look in the history of every record that's been set and claimed to be unbeatable, it's pretty much mm -hmm. gone on to be beaten. And it's with the way the march of technology, especially in cycling, then um, it probably won't stand for as long as people think. Um, I mean, even if Filippo just comes out in a couple of years' time and has a go again and nails everything perfectly this time, then yeah, it could, uh, could put a good chunk on it. But um, it's not an insurmountable margin, that's for sure. Well, you know, we, we for years we thought the Superman position was unbeatable, and you know, Filippo has gone and you know totally eclipsed that now. So it takes that sort of question mark away, and yeah, it might actually just you know, it, it, as you said, it's it's proved now it's possible. Uh, so it's possible to do something more, I guess. But speaking a lot there of the UCA, they recently updated their regulations that you can't actually use prototype frames and like going forward. Would that have made any difference to both the attempts that the NAS Grenadiers made recently? And can you see it making it harder for our record attempts in future? Uh, it wouldn't have affected Felipe. His bike was a fully commercial available bike uh, at the point that he rode it. It would have affected me. I rode it under prototype status. Uh, and was, I think it was two weeks later, it was fully approved as a, as a proper bike. Um, so... Yeah, it probably would have been a bit tighter with Pinarello having to push the ECI a bit harder to get everything through in time because it was more of a time frame thing than anything else that meant I was riding under prototype status. So uh, it probably it probably just cost a few weeks, really. If you're planning uh, well in advance, then it, it probably wouldn't cause an issue. I don't see it as a major thing. I think it's across all equipment, though, because quite a few pieces of equipment nowadays from, from shoes through to frames are running under prototype status in the Pro Peloton. Obviously, you pick up on quite a few of them, but equally not all of them trying to obviously know what you're looking for to, to find what is or isn't. And um, I think the UCI are quite open if you ask them and say, is this piece of equipment a prototype? They'll say, yes, it's under this status from this date until this date. And I think they're becoming a lot more uh, aware of, of the use of them and therefore documenting them and therefore allowing their use for a set time period as per the regulations. Whereas historically, it was a case of just a manufacturer ran something 
as a prototype and then UCI picked up on it and they claimed it maybe it just started last week and it might have been going on for a year or two um but uh yeah I think now they're they're a lot more hot on that and um only want prototypes to be used in uh races and not in record attempts which is it makes good sense I think um and maybe at some point they'll just completely get rid of prototypes in the in the propeller and um, in races full stop um I can see the reason behind why they exist any manufacturer who's developing something probably at least wants to stress test it but not commit entirely to to the design um and all the production that goes with it so the system exists for a reason and a good good manufacturing and design reason but it obviously has to coexist alongside the fairness and the ability to purchase any components in a reasonable time frame yeah i'm pretty sure there's one set of time trial tires i spotted recently that have been a prototype for about 10 years or more now um so getting getting things to actually come to market rather than forever being prototypes is probably a good thing yeah, I do think so. Uh, it's it's good the approach they're taking. They're finally just a bit more hot on with the regulations and and yeah, documenting it. I think a lot of it's come off the back of the Olympics with the track and and how they documented all the equipment to be used there and how much it cost and where you buy it from and who the contact name and number and email is. Because yeah, historically, if something something was on a website but with no contact, no email, no price, is that really commercially available? Where do you actually get it from? So uh, they're they're pressing, and I, I think it's a good thing. It just makes it okay. It, it still keeps the arms race on, um, but it makes it easier to access the things rather than just being behind closed doors with some yeah fake for sale sign basically above the the item. Uh, looking sideways a little bit now. Both yourself and Filippo will line up this week in the individual pursuit there at the track world championships uh sorry how are you looking forward to that and how are preparations going <laughs> uh i'm quite excited primarily more towards the team pursuit i would say i i love the individual pursuit for what it is but when it comes down to it the team pursuit is is like the proper blue ribbon event in that respect so uh hopefully we can do a, a really good ride i think as as preparation goes we're, we're in a good position and i think everyone's pretty happy um how we square up in the IP with uh, me and Felipe. I think there's a lot of other guys who could be competitive. People like, yeah, Jonathan Milan or uh, Corentin Ermino. There's a lot of uh, a lot of guys who've gone really fast this year. So uh, it's going to be competitive, that's for sure. And I've, I've never done three competition days back-to-back on the track like that. Um, I've never raced at a Nations Cup, for example, in Indigo event. I've only ever done team suit. So that's kind of a bit of a, a foray into the unknown. But... Uh, yeah, one I'm looking forward to. Um, interested to see, obviously, how Filippo goes with uh, with the new bike as well. He'll be on it, I think. Um, I'll be on the new bike too. So with a bit of luck, we can uh, get a one-two, one way or another. Mm. Well, um, best of luck in the uh, World Championships this week, Dan. And uh, yeah, congratulations on the wedding, first and foremost again. And congratulations on you know successfully engineering another our record, um, even if you did engineer it away from your own right <laughs> uh, thank you uh, it was it was a fun thing to be a part of so uh, uh, I am definitely very pleased with the outcome 